Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we are in the, the days between Rosh Hashanah and, and Yom Kippur. And these are in, in many ways the, the, absolutely the most amazing days of the entire year. And the way I, I, I learned it um, from the B'nai Yisachar, something just really absolutely mind-bending, which is that the old world isn't here anymore, right? Because there's a new world. So the old world isn't here anymore. It's, it just, it's gone. And the new world hasn't been created yet. So let's just say that again. The past is gone and the future isn't here yet. So we're in this unbelievable little, like, buffer zone between the past and the future. And that's actually reflected in a really startling way in the calendar. The, the lunar calendar, which we go by, is, is like 11 days shorter than the solar calendar. So if you look at the lunar calendar... As the, as the model, because we really go by the lunar calendar during the year, you'll see where, where did those 10 days go? It's like, they, it's like they disappeared. It's like they don't exist. So we're in this absolutely, we're like in this no man's land right now between the past which no longer exists and the future which hasn't been created yet. This is a phenomenal thing. So, so, so Yom Kippur is that time when, when sort of like Hashem hits the start button again. And then all of a sudden we're like rocketed back into reality. And these days are so precious that I heard in the name of a, a Rav, I, I didn't hear what his name was, but just it's, it's like, again, just a, a startling thing to hear. He said that if he was walking down the street and he saw a purse with gold coins in it, he wouldn't bend down to pick it up during this time because he's got too much to do. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? You're too busy to pick up a purse full of gold coins. So everything right now, and it's... You see, this is the... This is kind of like the, um, the hardest thing about life, in a way. Is is that we get desensitized to like just just the miraculousness of what's going on all the time. And the more you learn, the more you realize that just the baseline of normal reality is complete miraculousness. And then it just gets ratcheted up to ever more miraculousness. Like this time we're at like peak miraculousness. You know, and it's building to Yom Kippur, which is like even going to be beyond that. So it's sort of like, see, one of the things that we have, and you see it in mathematics, but I'm, I'm surprised that this isn't more widely known because I think that this is a really kind of, kind of bread and butter concept, which is you have the concept of levels of infinity. See, like a lot of people think, well, what's the infinite? Well, you know, if, if you ask me, like, to find the infinite, I would say, well, let's say you're counting. Like if I was going to explain it to my, my, my uh, a child or something, I'd say, let's say you're counting. And then you never stop counting. The numbers keep on going. You go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Blah, 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 blah. It never stops. That's infinity. Okay, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a child's definition of infinity. 
That's, that's one expression of it anyway. It's not incorrect. But do you know that between the numbers 1 and 2, there's an infinite number of numbers? 1.1111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111111
um, all over the place. So I'll give you an example. If we want to talk about the creation of the world, so, so you know, I, I've, seen, I've seen some translations that I, I like quite a bit. Tohu uh, uvohu, they translate that as, that basically that some a, a, astonishing emptiness, right? Like in the beginning of time, there was this like astonishing void or darkness. And then we say, um, God said, let there be light, right? That's one of the most, vayihi or, that's one of the first pronouncements, vayihi or. So what does that imply? Well, that, that whether you're thinking through it or not, this is certainly emotionally what your brain just registered, that the beginning is darkness, and then God brings light, right? But that's completely incorrect, because before the world was created, all there was was God. And one of the names of God is or in sof, light without end. So the starting point for all of creation, for all of existence, is astonishing light, not astonishing darkness, not astonishing emptiness, not a void. The world begins with this unbelievable light, the light of God, literally. And then, and then it becomes concealed. And then it becomes revealed. Right? Like God creates all these amazing things, all these windows through which we can experience Him and see Him. Right? Including our own soul. And of course... The, the, the great culmination of that will be when Mashiach comes and we'll see the great, the great light that was always there. It's not going to be a, a new light. It's going to be a, a, a revelation of the light was, that was always there. But perhaps because of all the work that we did over history, we'll be able to see an even higher aspect of that light which was always there. So this way you have both at the same time. In other words, I'm answering a question. One is... Is the light at the end of days going to be even greater than the initial light? I don't know that that's the case. I don't, I don't think that it is. But because that light is infinite, there's so many levels to it, I think that we're going to be able to perceive that light in an even greater way than we did initially. So you understand we're reconciling two things. It will be that same light, but for us it will be an even greater light. It will be an even higher revelation of that light. Okay. So, so now, you, you see it again. We say, let's talk about the Torah. You'll see this pattern again, which is revelation, concealment, revelation. Okay? So revelation, what, so where, do, where do you see it? You see it um, that the Talmud says that the Torah was created 974 generations before the world was created. Right? And we've explained that many times, that it doesn't mean that there was a Torah scroll floating up in the sky because there was no time or space, right? So what does it mean the Torah existed before the world was created? The Torah was God's plan for the world, God's will for the world, right? Just before you embark on a great project, you have a plan for that project, right? Like, like great architects, they don't say, you know what, why don't you put a beam over there? No, 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 to the right. No, 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 you don't forget the beam. Bring in the bricks. Let's try some bricks over there. No, where's the wood? There's no wood? Okay, cut down some trees. I can wait. Like, they, you don't build it. You don't pick it up on the spot. Like, when you have a big project in mind, you have a plan for the project before you begin the project. That's just total simplicity. That's just logic, right? 
So God had a plan for the world. I mean, can you imagine he's going to make billions and billions of people and, you know, who knows what, which he's going to fill creation with. You have a plan for that before you start that, okay? So God's plan for the world, his will for the world, that's the Torah before the world was created. And then here's the outrageous, amazing part of it. He takes that will, that light, that energy, and he forms from this will, which we're saying is the Torah, before the world was created, this plan, from this plan, so to speak, from this energy, he forms the world out of that. Which is why we say that the mitzvot are the building blocks of creation, because he used that in order to form the world. And which is why we say mind-bending things like the reason why we have an arm is because there's a mitzvah for tefillin. So since that was one of the building blocks of creation, God's got to give us an arm to do it with. Right? So, so again, we've got this pattern of revelation, concealment, revelation. You see it all over the place. So the Torah existed before the world was created. Then it becomes concealed. Right? And then God gives us the Torah. And God gives us the Torah. And he's given it to us, or has tried to give it to us, times before Mount Sinai, just so you know. Because Adam and Chava had two mitzvahs in the Garden of Eden, to work and to guard the garden. And they say that those two mitzvahs was a microcosm of all 613 commandments. One was a positive and one was a negative. Okay? To work, that's a positive. To safeguard, that's a, that's a lotase, that's a negative. And that contained the entire Torah right there. Then it says that, remember, we say Kabbalistically in terms of the um, Gilgulim, transmigration of souls, reincarnation, we say that, that um, Noah becomes reincarnated as Moshe. And that those 40 days of rain that come down, right? How long was Moshe on Mount Sinai for? 40 days. And what do we say that whenever we mention water in the Torah, what does the Gomorrah say? That whenever you're talking about water, you're always talking about Torah. So what does it mean that 40 days of rain, right? That means that at that time, God wanted to give the Torah, but the generation wasn't worthy. So the spiritual aspect of Torah, the light of Torah, manifested itself in a physical way, which was water which was rain, and it actually became a destructive force. Because it actually says, so that's another occasion where God wanted to give the Torah. So from Gan Eden to Noah, and then finally at Mount Sinai. Right? And what does it say? That, it, that if we had said, if the world had said no to the Torah, the whole world would have disappeared. Right? Because the world itself is made out of Torah. And we're created to keep the Torah. So if we're the bottom line, the keepers of the Torah, and we're not keeping the Torah, then what do you need the world for? Now, we'll say something else. Again, revelation and concealment, this like amazing twin dynamic. I think everybody knows this, but let's just throw it in anyway. The way the calendar is arranged, the calendar, of course, in the Jewish calendar is so holy. Every aspect of the Jewish calendar is so holy. 
And we know that whatever day of the week Pesach comes on, that's the same day of the week Tisha B'Av is going to be. So if Pesach is a Friday night, Tisha B'Av is a Friday night. It's every single year. It's an ironclad rule. And, and why? Because one is redemption. Pesach is redemption. Right? The Zohar says in the, the end of days, when Mashiach comes, that's going to be based on the salvation of the Jews from Egypt. That was sort of the model for the Geula, for the redemption. So what's the flip side of redemption? Exile. That's Tisha B'Av. So it's always the same... It's always the same day. So concealment and revelation, right? Geula and Galus. Geula means redemption. Galus means exile. It's the same word, only Geula has the letter Aleph in it. Aleph, we know, is like a little little hint to God. Why? Because the letter Aleph is composed of three letters, right? There's a Yud, a Vav on the diagonal, and another Yud. And if you add up those three letters... Yud and Yud is 10 and 10 is 20, and Vav is 6, that adds up to 26. And that's the name of God's holy, that's the number for God's holiest name, the Yud Ke Vav Ke, the Tetragrammaton. So it's all contained, and what is, what is Aleph? Aleph is the number one, because God is one, the oneness of God. So redemption has the letter Aleph in it, <laughs> because God is revealing himself. But when God takes out the letter Aleph from redemption, God becomes concealed, and it spells the word exile. Okay, so, so when we look at the initial light of creation, right, it says, it says that, it says, and God said that the, that took the light, right, it's referring to the light. So ha-or is the light, when it's talking about the initial light of of um, of creation. Actually, let me amend that, because we had a very very great light in the beginning, and then God gives us the light of the sun and the moon, which are like a joke compared to that initial light. That initial light is like like the holiest and purest. The light of the sun and the moon is already clothed in nature. Right? So it's a much smaller light. And when it's talking about that light, Ha'or, which is that, that light of the initial light, the, the light of the sun and the moon, right? Ha'or, anyone want to guess what the gematria of Ha'or is? Right, 613. <laughs> I'm sorry, S Ha'or. Right? He took the light. S Ha'or is 613. So where did God hide that initial light of creation? Or I'm sorry, where did God hide the Torah, which existed before the world was created? Es Ha'or, right? It's in, it's in the it's in the mitzvahs. It's in the Torah, in this book that we have here. So if you want to access that initial light of creation. If you want to get to the, back to that, like first light, you go into you go into the Torah, you go into the mitzvahs. So, so, 
So in that way, es or is actually hinting at the initial light again. Just to be clear. Um, but again, the bottom line is this pattern of revelation, concealment, revelation. That the Torah existed before the world was created, then it becomes concealed, then it becomes revealed again. How about men and women? How about husbands and wives, right? So our tradition is, is that is that we start off as one soul. So that's revelation. You're one soul already. Then what happens? You come down in two separate bodies. It's like, where are you? <laughs> Show up already. It's too long. We're getting frustrated. You know? And then, oh, there you are. Okay, good. So now we're back. Now we're back. <laughs> so, so again, it starts off as one soul, then it becomes concealed in two separate bodies, sometimes like two different places in the entire globe, right? And then they come back together under the chuppah, and it becomes one again. So, so one of the things that that uh, that that you see getting back to just kind of like how problematic it is to be a human being <laughs> is that is that all of these things are revealed and if you all these teachings that I'm telling you right this this is this is what we're saying is going on we're not saying we believe this stuff we say this is what's going on see we don't we 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 don't believe in religion. And actually, there's, I don't think that there's any such thing as religion. It's either happening or it's not happening. Right? In which case, it's either true or it's false. So, like, I, I had a rabbi who was a, a great Talmud Chacham, an amazing person, and he said to me, why do we do this? Why, why are we doing any of this? Because it's true. So he said, if the Torah told me that I have to bowl all day, I would be at the bowling alley bowling all day. Like, if that's what I'm supposed to be doing, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> right? It's not because I believe. I mean, believing is, it's, it's cute and it's sweet. <laughs> but, but we have to be a little bit more sophisticated. It's either going on or it's not going on. If it's not going on, then what do I need it for? I mean, it might be helpful psychologically and things like that. So, you know something interesting? I heard from Rabbi Cardozo. He was talking about, you know, this statement from uh, Karl Marx, who said that religion is the opiate of the masses, right? Meaning, what does that mean? Like, it's like opium. It's like, it's like a drug. It, it's, it, it makes you feel good or whatever it is. So, but there's a, there's a very clear response to that. Why, if it's true, why shouldn't it make you feel good? <laughs> and, and is it a problem if it makes you feel good? Right? Like, like it should make you feel good. So, so, you know, if you just think through it for a moment, it really, it, it really is a kind of a ridiculous statement. It's just meant to put people on the defensive and to make people apologetic for 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 their beliefs 
but it ought to make you feel good. And if your religious practice isn't making you feel good, then you need to deal with that. You need to deal with that because you have to be in a positive state of mind. And, um, you know, we've talked about it before, but especially this time of year, it's a good subject to bring up, which is guilt. Let's talk about guilt for a moment, right? Like guilt is a very positive thing, which is wildly misused by human beings. Like it's, what, what, is, what is guilt? Guilt is basically, and the, the Jewish people are praised for having a sense of shame, which is kind of like guilt. Like that's actually one of the signs that you're Jewish. If you, no, really, it says, it says that if someone doesn't have that quality, you can question their lineage, right? You know, that's one of the things that a sociopath has is no guilt or shame whatsoever, right? So if we do something bad, we feel bad about it. That's actually a very positive quality. But you have to understand, like, how, how, it's, how the system is supposed to work, okay? So I compare guilt to a smoke alarm. All right, so, so this is how it goes. You want smoke alarms in your house because if there's a fire, you want to know about it, right? You don't want to be asleep and then, God forbid, the house catches on fire. Chas v'sholem, you know, who knows what? With the sleeping people, who knows what? God forbid, right? We should never, never know about it. If there's a, a fire going off in, in a person's house, you want to be alerted to it and then you can put it out or call the fire... Uh, department and run out of the house. So that's a good thing. A fire alarm is a, or a smoke detector is a really good thing. Guilt is a smoke detector. If a person starts feeling guilty, that means that they sense that something wrong happened, that they did something wrong, right? It's, it's, it's this sixth sense, if you will, that you did something wrong. And that's the smoke alarm. Now, let me ask you something. Would you want a smoke alarm that, let's say, you burn some toast, and then the smoke alarm goes off, and you go, okay, great. And then you kind of run to the toaster oven, you unplug it, take out the toast. Maybe the toast is a little bit on fire or something like that. Put it out. It's no big deal, right? And for the rest of your life, the smoke alarm is still going <laughs> You would take a baseball bat <laughs> and you would smash the smoke detector. It's like, you did your job, now cool it. Right? You, you get the point? What happens with people who are consumed with guilt is they're being alerted that something's off. Then you think to yourself, what's off? What's off? What did I do? What did I do? Oh, yeah, I was really rude to that guy. Or you know what? I... I should have done this and I didn't do it. Okay, at that point, guilt has done its job. It's over at that point. It's alerted to you to the fact that something was wrong and now it's handing you the ball for you to take care of it. Okay, so call them up. Apologize. Write them an email. Text them. Whatever it is. Oh, you, I owe that person money. Pay the person. Talk to them. I can't pay you right now but I'm going to pay you. Okay, good. So you've taken care of it. You're doing your thing, right? Then, if you feel that sense of guilt again, right? You say, hey, Brother Guilt, 
I'm on it. You did your job, now let me do my job. You see? So that's, that's what it is. But, 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 but people do something very perverse. And again, this is all wrapped up in the emotions. So a person has to sort of like understand how to deal with themselves. Here's what some people do. And it's very um, self-destructive. But a lot of people don't have insight into their own behavior. They go, I did something wrong. It's not so easy for me to fix it. Like, let's say there's some marital infidelity or something like that. God forbid. That's not so easy to fix. You don't just say, hey, sorry, we're cool, right? <laughs> and then, hey, come on, I'm moving on. Why can't you move on? That was yesterday. We're good now. You know, like, some things take much longer to fix. Okay, well... That's, that's true. And then you have to deal with the consequences of your actions. That's true. However, what some people do is, but again, once you, once you are dealing with it in a productive way, and you say, okay, you know, I'm on it. I'm dealing with it. I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying to do my best to fix it. Okay. So that's, that's that. But what some people do is they, they can't, they, they, they mistake the pain of being consumed by guilt. They confuse that with a purification process. And so what they do is they embrace their own guilt and they embrace their own suffering, thinking that that's some sort of tikkun, that's some sort of fixing for their wrongdoing. And then to make things even worse, a lot of people don't even do an action to try to fix it because they think the suffering and being consumed by their own guilt is actually the fixing for the problem. See, that's where the Yetzirah gets mixed up in a person's psychology and emotions and consciousness and really tries to kill the person. Remember, the Yetzirah doesn't just want you to do averas, doesn't just want you to make mistakes. The Yetzirah wants to kill you. If Mamish wants to actually kill you, it wants to see you dead. Literally. Literally. Remember, the Gomorrah says that the Yetzirah, right, the evil inclination, the negative inclination, the Sutton and the Malachamavis, the angel of death, are all one, one thing. That's one unit. And the Gomorrah explains that the Yetzirah entraps a person into wrongdoing, the Sutton then prosecutes them, and then the Malachamavis, the angel of death, comes and collects the body. It's all, it's all one unit. It's one unit. So, so a person has to really be very sharp in terms of understanding how to deal with their own Yetzirahs. Because the Yetzirah, just like, you know, it's like one of the ways it was explained to me many years ago, um, or maybe I added this, I don't know. I think maybe I added this in the retreat because it's so weird, it sounds like me. It's like, it's like you know, the Yetzirah is like, puts his arm around you and says, hey man, let's do some crimes, right? And you're like, and you're like, I'm down, right? Let's do it. Where are we going to go? So you get behind the wheel and they're riding shotgun, right? Meanwhile, what's going on? 
they have a wire taped to their chest. <laughs> it's total entrapment. They're working for the government. They're not your friend. You know, you think they're, you think they're your best friend. Like when the Yetzirah goes, oh, you know what we should do today? You know what we should call? You know what we should do? You know, you think, oh, that's my most beloved self talking to me. Where are you? I've been waiting for you to whisper in my ear. Who's he telling you to call? You just said, let's call. What are you saying? So, so, <laughs> so the Yetzirah entraps a person, right? And then, and then you show up in court and the government says, okay, let's call in our first witness and it's the Yetzirah shows up. And you're like, I thought you were my friend. And he's like, sucker. <laughs> right? Who told you to listen to me? You had a hundred people telling you not to listen to me. So it's very confusing. And a person really has to clarify their relationship. And remember, but it's not easy. And this is a lifelong fight. This is a lifelong fight. Don't think, okay, great. I, I, I heard today I have to slay my Yetzirah. Then I got to go to Ralph's, do some shopping for Yantip. <laughs> it's, not, it's, it's not like that. This is a lifelong battle. And it says that the Yetzirah is an angel and it renews itself every single day and it knows you better than you know you. Right? Why is it so good? Why is it so good? Because there's something supernatural about it. Right? So, in, in fact, the Talmud says even stronger. The Talmud says that you actually don't have the power. You are not powerful enough to defeat your Yetzirah. But because Hashem assists you, you're able to do it. I mean, you have to understand who's the enemy, right? How, how strong is the Yetzirah? It's that strong, right? So you have to, first, you have to respect it. You can't think, oh, yeah, yeah. No, you have to respect it. And then you take it seriously, and then you have to learn strategies around it. So, so again, let's return back to this point, this grand pattern, this grand pattern that we have which is revelation, concealment, revelation. And again, just to put it in the widest terms again, the broadest strokes, we have before the world was created, there was only God. That's total revelation. Then God creates the world with like this whole curtain of nature. That's concealment. And then Mashiach comes. That's revelation. Right? Revelation, concealment, revelation. You see that pattern again with man and woman, one soul together in Shemayim. They come down in two different bodies. They get back together again, right? So we've got we've got all sorts of models for this pattern in life. So now we were saying we started off by saying that the baseline of all of reality is miraculousness. Everything is a miracle because God is bringing the world into existence. Every single moment. Every single moment. So everything is a new opening. Every moment is a new opening. And every moment is miraculous. For real. Really. Honestly. 
I can tell you the fact that I'm giving this talk to you today is completely miraculous. <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going on exactly, but I'm just going with it, you know? So, but then we've got, just like we've got levels of infinity, we said that there's an infinite number between the numbers one and two, right? 1.1111111111, right? We've also got levels of infinity. We've also got levels of miraculousness, right? So where we are right now in terms of the year where the world, the old world is gone and the new world hasn't been created yet, this is like one of the highest peak moments of miraculousness right now. And why don't we see it? Why don't we see it? Because we're encased in this body. We were talking about how a soul is like a diamond, right? And then you reach into a chillin' pot and take out a chunk of meat, and you put the diamond inside the piece of meat. <laughs> That's us. And we're so desensitized to what's going on. We're so desensitized to what's going on. That's why it's absolutely essential to learn Torah and ideally to be learning Torah every single day. You have to learn Torah every single day is the truth. You have to. Because otherwise, you're going to convince yourself that what you see with your eyes is the true reality. And that is the greatest illusion of all. It's the greatest illusion of all. I mean, science is telling us, and math is telling us, that there are dimensions beyond this dimension that we can't see. It's no longer the realm of religion anymore. Like, all of, all of academia is telling you that there's more to this world than you can see with your eye. All of academia is telling you that. You don't have to rely on saying, well, I don't know. Right? Aren't I? So it's seeing is believing, right? You know what Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haber says? One of the great shots that I've learned is when it says, remember after Adam and Chava eat from the tree of knowledge? It says, God opened up their eyes and then they saw each other's nakedness, right? So, so no normally speaking, it's a very confusing bit of language, especially for people in contemporary society, because... Um, opening up your eyes usually is a very positive uh, turn of phrase. Oh, you know something? I thought this was true. And then he opened my eyes and I really saw that this was true, right? Like, usually it means revelation. But what, what he says is, God, what it means is, what the actual simple meaning of the text is, God opened up our eyes to the realm of nature so that we just saw the realm of nature. We just saw concealment at that point. Right? It sounds a little counterintuitive, but that's actually what it means. And then the rest of the passage makes sense. And then we saw each other's nakedness because our eyes were opened to concealment. And that became the new default setting on our hardwiring. That became our new normal, was that concealment is normal. But that's not true reality. This is not true reality. So how do you stay in this place of understanding that we're, you know, that there's so much beyond, right? 
and that we don't have time to pick up that purse full of gold coins, right? There's only one way. There's only one way. And that's through studying Torah. Right? Doing mitzvahs. Talking to God. It's the only way. It's the only way to make it through this world. It is the only way to make it through this world and not be defeated by this world. And not to have that horrible moment when you're standing before the heavenly court and your best friend walks out <laughs> and says, Sucka! <laughs> right? The Yitzhahara, right? He's working for the government all the time, right? Turns state witness, right? You know, and then you go, oh man, why didn't anyone tell me? And then they go, okay, let's go to the videotape. That guy told you, and that guy told you, and that guy told you, and that guy told you. There was no shortage of people telling you. That wasn't the issue. That wasn't the issue. The issue is, are we willing to get out of our comfort zone? This is the issue. This is the bottom line. The Rambam talks about something. See, we have two concepts which sound very similar, but they're worlds apart. I'll give you the positive one first. We have something called self-esteem. You know what self-esteem is? Self-esteem is so essential. It means that uh, I'm a good person. That means that a person believes that. As it says in the sitter in the morning prayers that we say, hopefully every morning, we say that God put inside me a pure neshama. Right? And a person can do all sorts of horrible things. Right? And your neshama is still pure. Right? You may have put some junk on top of it, but your neshama never stops being pure no matter what you do. Right? I, I, I've shared with you before, but I'm just reminded of it just because it was so startling. I went to a, a minion one time in New York City. It was like on a Sunday morning. And, you know, anyone who shows up on a Sunday morning to an early morning minion wants to be there. No one's pushing them to be there. This was an adult. He shows up. Everyone's got to fill in on. He doesn't have to fill in on. So afterwards, you know, they figure, okay, he's new. Maybe he never bought to fill in. Maybe he doesn't know how to put it on or whatever it is. So that's why he's not putting on to fill in. So someone comes up to him afterwards and says to him nicely, you know, do you want to put on to fill in? And he says, no. So it's a little bit strange. He's showing up at this thing, and everyone's got to fill it on. They're davening, and he doesn't have any. And they asked him to put it on. He doesn't want to put it on. You say, why? He says, because last night I ate lobster. And these hands which held lobster aren't worthy of having to fill it on. Now, that is, man, that is textbook Yetzirah. Textbook Yetzirah. Because with the Yetzirah, one of its greatest tricks is to come to you and to take your idealism and to turn it against you. To use it as a sword to stab you and kill you with. Because this person, if you think about it, was actually saying something incredibly beautiful. He was saying something incredibly beautiful. He was saying... Do you know why I'm not putting on tefillin? Not because I don't think it's holy, because I think it's so holy, and he believed that. And yet the Yetzirah then comes and takes this perspective of how holy 
Tevillin is, and then says, ah, therefore, you're not allowed to put it on. And then, ah, knife right into the heart. Uses his own idealism, uses his own commitment to truth, using his own refusal to be a hypocrite, and uses it to slay him with it. So there's self-esteem, which is understanding that, you know, you can eat all the lobster you like. I, I hope you don't. But what does that have to do with putting on to fill in the next day? Or lighting Shabbos candles or whatever it is. What does one thing have to do with the other? It has nothing to do with the other. You still have a soul, right? Your soul wants to do mitzvahs. So that's self-esteem. I have a pure soul. I'm in a good person. I'm a good person, and you know maybe I make mistakes, and maybe I can be doing more, but I'm trying my best. That's that's self-esteem, and God loves me, and I know God loves me. That's that's what it is. That's self-esteem. Then you have something called self-love. Self-love, which the Rambam says, oh boy, you really better be careful about self-love. <laughs> self-esteem, yes. Self-love is, ooh, I just love me the way I am. <laughs> Don't want to be any better than this because I'm so good right now. Don't want to mess that up. <laughs> it's so fun being me, loving me. And I don't want to do any more. Maybe I can do a little less. That would be good. You know what? That would be even better. I would actually love myself even more than that. You don't want. And he says, everyone's got a degree of self-love. And self-love is really the thing that has to be confronted, which is taking yourself, willing to be able to take yourself out of your comfort zone. Right? And again, when it comes to this, you have to really work with people, right? Because you don't want to take yourself to a place that is not sustainable. Right? In other words, you want to give yourself the impetus for change, but you don't want to sabotage yourself. Right? And that's, um, that's, that's a fine line. So how much change is too much change? Right? I want to do change. But how much change is too much change? Okay, so now you have to work with someone. And, 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 and you have to talk to a rab, you have to talk to a chacham, you have to talk to someone who knows you, and who can help you and guide you at that point. So, I'm just going to wrap it up. I was playing with this idea, and maybe we'll say it again, Yom Kippur, maybe. But, you see, the new world's not here yet. We have a spiritual foundation, a very important spiritual principle, which is what, what, you, what goes on below is going on above. If you see something below, right, that means that there's a parallel to something going on in heaven at that moment. Now, it's not always obvious what that parallel is, but there is a parallel, okay? So we have something, especially in today's society, we talk about the new model, right? We've got the new model car, right? We've got the new model Android or iPhone, right? We've got the new model dress, 
or suit, right? It's like wide lapels, thin lapels, in between lapels, long hem, short hem, in between hem, right? It's always changing, right? That's the new model. And so a lot of us are like, you know something? I'm okay with the old model, <laughs> you know? I don't need the brand new Lexus to think I'm a good person, right? I don't need to have, like, whatever's the latest bit of technology so that I should think, or other people should think that I'm a good person, right? So that's, that's healthy. That's healthy. You don't want to get, like, too wrapped up in what we would call gashmias, right, in terms of materiality. So that's positive. However, however, there is a version of that which we do have to approach in a different way. When God is making the new world, and that's going on right now, there's a new model coming out. That's going to be the new model of the world. And when the new model of the world comes out, you don't want to be the old model. Because when the new model comes out, if you're the old model, you don't fit into the new model. Or, it's just, it's not the same. You're the old model in the new model world. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. So how do you become the new model for the new model world? So you have to change yourself. You have to say, this thing that I used to do, I'm not doing it anymore. This thing that I refuse to do on principle, all right, I'm going to do it. So now I'm the new model. Now I'm the new model, and now I fit into the new model world. So, Hashem should bless us that really, you know, we take advantage of this opportunity, you know. I was saying, like, earlier, that, um, you know, every day is a new opportunity. But someone, like, doesn't ask you to marry them every day. Like, someone asks you to marry you. That's, that's a big deal. That's, that's, that's a much larger opportunity that's being presented. Right? So we see that, yeah, it's true, every day is a new opportunity. But there are certain things in life that are actually substantially bigger opportunities. Right now, this period of the year, right now in Yom Kippur, that's a giant opportunity. It's a giant opportunity. Giant. Giant. And we should just be aware of it, because when we know it, then we can use it. 